Welcome back, friends. This is your friendly neighborhood podcast host, Shayla Master, and you're in the right place for Conversations with the Mind. I want to start off by saying thank you to all of our listeners. Please continue to listen to the show. That's the best way you can support us. Second best way, like and share. When you see it on uh, social media, guys, just blast it out to your friends and family. It really does help spread the word. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to see a little bit more of that, as well as... Uh, you know, sharing by sharing in person, sharing verbally with your friends and family, that all often gets a little bit more of an impact when you're, I don't know, when you're trying to talk about these topics. If you like what you hear on the podcast, feel free to donate. No obligation. Uh, it is free to all the listeners. But if you feel like you get some value out of this and uh, it has helped your life in some way, uh, feel free to contribute, you know, $1, $5, $10, whatever, uh, you know, whatever you spend on a day's worth of I don't know, coffee or entertainment or something like that. Uh, just to help us keep the podcast going, to help us get better guests and uh, keep our equipment up to date. Anyway, um, also go check out the YouTube page. That's MindOps YouTube page, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. Uh, that's also uh, for the website, www.mind hyphen O-P-S.com. Go check all that out, folks. And here's a little bit of some Arturo Complex for your listening pleasure.
Okay, so usually this is the part of the podcast where we do a good news story. Um, instead, I'm going to switch it up just a little bit. And, I mean, this is good news, uh, but it's not necessarily like an article or, or uh, you know, like a, a specific piece of good news. So I started up my uh, second semester at school here at CSU in the PhD program, uh, School of Social Work. And this semester, I'm taking a course on pedagogy, uh, on the application of teaching and teaching methodologies and uh, teaching theory and all that stuff. And we're, we're just starting uh, this amazing book, which is one of our primary texts in the class. It's a book called The Courage to Teach. And it is a book uh, written by a gentleman who um, I believe he takes, uh, I think my professor said he takes more of like a Christian um Worldview, spiritual view, things like that. But the way he writes um, is, you know, not, you know, it's not preachy. It's not anything like that. It's really, it feels more non-denominational than anything. But anyway, this book um, supposedly won a ton of awards back in the day, bestsellers. Uh, it's been in many different editions. Uh, the author is Palmer. Let me see his first name. Let's see. Parker J. Palmer. Uh, the Courage to Teach, Exploring the Inner Landscape of a Teacher's Life. And I never, um, you know, I've, I've been in various positions teaching, teaching martial arts, teaching, um, you know, women's self-defense, teaching um, concepts of mindfulness, teaching about psychedelics, things like that. I've had these little experiences here and there where I get to do that. And so I've gained some proficiency in some ways of teaching, but I never really thought of myself as like a teacher. Uh, I never really thought of myself as like someone who could dedicate the entire craft um, that they pursue to educating others. You know, I always wanted to be on the side that was, you know, pushing the boundaries and, and pushing research and pushing philosophy and thought to the next level um, in practice and in, you know, active uh, publication and things like that, which aren't exactly teaching. I mean, they are in their own way, but it's not, you know, sitting in front of the classroom talking about these things. Um, it's more about publication and things like that. But anyway, I'm opening myself more and more through this class uh, to my capabilities as a teacher and my responsibilities to be a teacher and to give uh, a lot of this information back um, that is so uh, well that's given to me maybe not so freely because tuition is quite expensive but um, yeah I like to share some of the the most important I don't know things that really jump out at me from my studies with all of you so today's good news story will be uh, I I'm just going to be reading just a few passages that I highlighted, uh, some really powerful statements that I came across in chapter two. Uh, chapter two of this book is called A Culture of Fear. And it is primarily talking about uh, the culture of academia and education, but it's applicable to our entire culture right now, a uh, culture of fear, which is primarily what it is. So I'm going to read some of these uh, phrases to you guys, just see if you can clear your minds a little bit from what you've been thinking about all day or or feeling all day and just see if you can listen with an open heart and an open mind to these phrases and just pay attention. Don't try and judge it. Just pay attention to how it makes you feel. Uh, pay attention to what thoughts come up for you 
and uh, see if you can find some kind of learning and power from these. So here we go. Um, let's see. All right, we start off. And these are just going to be phrases that I throw out. There's no real context that I'm providing, um, but I will try and leave a pause between um, the different phrases. All right. Fear shuts down those experiments with truth that allow us to weave a wider web of connectedness. By understanding our fear, we could overcome the structure of disconnection with the power of self-knowledge. Consensual decision-making in which all can win and none can lose, in which winning means emerging from the encounter with a larger sense of self than one brought into it, in which we learn that the self is not a scrap or of turf to be defended, but a capacity to be enlarged. We practice a politics of fear in which candidates are elected by playing on voters' anxieties about race and class. We do business in an economy of fear where getting and spending are driven by consumer worries about keeping up with the neighbors. We subscribe to religions of fear that exploit our dread of death and damnation. In a culture where fear is the air we breathe, it is hard to see how deeply fearful our lives are. All right, here's a good one. Fear that lets us know we are on the brink of real fear. Oh, okay. So it's talking about fear. This is the fear that lets us know we are on the brink of real learning. It is the fact that at, at a certain moment, when we are so far from our own country, we are seized by a vague fear and an instinctive desire to go back to the protection of old habits. At that moment, we are feverish about... Uh, or we are feverish, but also porous, so that the slightest touch makes us quiver to the depths of our being. We come across a cascade of light, and there is eternity. I really like the uh, the symbolism and the imagery in that one. And that can take you any number of ways. Alright, let me keep looking. That might be the last one. So yeah, some stuff to think about. When it comes to fear, as a topic itself, fear in general, uh, individual fear, and also how we observe these kind of fears manifest in society and other people. And, um, you know, it's a little bit easier for us to have some compassion when we we know that we can go there too. Uh, Here's another quote. I can have fear, but I need not be fear. If I'm willing to stand someplace else in my inner landscape. Okay. All right. So that's it for that one. Um, I think I'm going to do this same type of thing in the next episode where I provide a little bit of a reading for you to just think on, um, which is good news in and of itself. You know, it's like providing a a little bit of introspection for yourself. Um, okay, so conversation that's been on my mind recently, um, and I'll give you a piece of my mind. Um, and in particular, related to today's guest, we'll get into his intro in a little bit, but I've been thinking about uh, the potential for altered states through music. Uh, we Most of us out there listen to music, and we have had experiences where music can totally move us, can change your emotion, can change... 
um, the way you perceive existence, uh, the lyrics um, can sometimes color or color in areas of your understanding such that you can create, you know, more effective ways of dealing with things. You know, you hear a song about somebody overcoming something, it can provide motivation and guidance for you to help get you out of your place sometimes. So all these are altered states, and music is um, part of this catalyst that is creating these um, states that we experience through it. So I think a lot about that, and in a way that, you know, um, it's interesting because we are allowed to alter our consciousness in certain ways, but not others. So we're allowed to, in this country, alter our consciousness through certain drugs, through music, through um, sex, through things like that, exercise. But we're restricted um, from altering it from other ways. And it's just interesting how how that is. Uh, definitely there's some people serving their own interests somewhere in there. Um, but thinking about music as a way to alter your state of consciousness, I wanted to superimpose the words music and drugs. So thinking about music as a drug, um, something that you ingest into your body through your ears um, and that changes your understanding of the world, um, uh, changes your perceptions, changes how you feel uh, literally in your body. And these are all similar things that uh, can happen on drugs as well. So just thinking about, you know, how we use words to classify experiences that have similar characteristics, but that are different in some way. And that some words that we use designate things as bad and some things designate them as good. I also wanted to talk about, um, how music can push us and influence us and how it interacts with consciousness in such a special way that I don't think anything else does in a way that, you know, a book, a really good book, uh, reading, um, something extremely inspirational can also have on you. Music has the power to change, uh, the direction of your life, to provide insights uh, towards, you know, growth opportunities and struggle and overcoming struggle. Uh, you can feel immense support um, when you're feeling alone in your struggle from listening to music and other people going through it. So very, very powerful medicine music can be. Um, and it can also be used as a, you know, a teaching and learning tool. Um, so, you know, for me anyway, uh when people come to me and they tell me about, you know, they're just starting to get into uh, spirituality and their spiritual path, and do I have any suggestions for them for books or seminars or teachers that they should go explore? Um, one of the first things I suggest, just because it's so available, is to, uh, you know, I'm, I will suggest a few uh, specific bands, uh, music that for me has helped to open up my, I guess my third eye to um, the, some of the realities of the universe and some explanation as to why I feel the way I do. Um, so interested in um, that connection, that universal connection. So my go-to suggestion is, uh, of course, the band Tool who apparently won a bunch of, I think, Grammys this year for 
like best metal song or best metal album or some I don't know something like that. But uh, really cool to see that they're finally getting the the attention that they have always deserved, but uh, um, you know have not always. They don't they don't really focus on that. They just focus on their craft and uh, you know putting out the best possible learning device. So you listen to Tool and you, you figure out the lyrics and, you know, it's very spiritual. Very, very, uh, it takes you on a trip every song. And some songs are quite long, you know, at 13 and 15 minutes and things like that. And it literally takes you on a journey uh, if you close your eyes or, or something like that. And I don't know, it's very transformative. It's been a great teaching tool for me um, and a great reminder of things that I've learned in the past. So anyway, music, we're going to get into that quite in depth in this episode. So our guest today, Jason Vetrano, very, very, uh, special guy. He's a good friend of mine. Um, so this will be episode 70. It's also a big landmark. Anytime I reach another digit of 10 is at least when I'm under 100 episodes. It's a big deal. So thanks, Jason, for being on the 70th episode. Um, Jason's a dedicated husband and father, and I wanted to have him on to talk about music uh, because I've been thinking about music as altered states. And for him, music has really been uh, one of his major curiosities and major passions in his life. He was a big part of the Detroit techno scene in the 1990s, uh, which some of you who are familiar with the history of techno know that that was a big time and a big place for the development of that entire genre of music. Um, and, you know, we, we talk about a lot of things. We talk about music as a possible vehicle um, just that can transport you to your inner world so that you can, you know, play around in there and, and navigate and understand yourself better and better. Um, you know, we definitely talk about the... Tr- Detroit music scene, his passion for music. I talk a little bit about my limited experience with techno music and sort of my um, introduction to those and uh, what the what that style has done for me. Uh, we talk about things like sound healing, um, altered states, all sorts of things, and the potential for um, I don't know for my ideas to to uh, explore the realm of heavy metal through psychedelia. Um, I'll unpack that a little bit in the episode. So let's get right into it, and I uh, hope you enjoy the show, folks. Thanks for coming back. Conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet, and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. Welcome back to Conversations with the Mind, folks. I'm your host, as always, Shane Lamaster. I'm here for episode number 70, so a big one, wow. uh, with very special guests. 
Jason uh, Vitrano. Did I say that right? You did. Okay. Is there any kind of like, um, like it sounds like an Italian name, like Vitrano? It is. It's funny. I just came across uh, um, uh, these olives in the supermarket that are called Castle Vitrano. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if we're related there. But yeah, it's it's an Italian last name. Maybe there's some family fortune or something (laughs) or some vineyards (laughs) waiting for you. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so first question I ask everybody, uh, is the same on this show. And that is, uh, that the, the podcast is called conversations with the mind. And so when you hear that phrase, how does that land with you? What comes up as far as meaning, um, in your mind, uh, when you hear that phrase conversations with the mind, uh, a bunch of stuff comes up, I guess. Um, uh, the first thing that I just thought of was, uh, uh, uh an album that was on, plus eight records way back when called uh, from our minds to yours. Uh, so uh, music as a way to, to converse between people as well. Um, you know, and then just, uh, you know, having this conversation about mind and about consciousness and about, you know, uh, the way that we think, the way that we communicate between the two of us. Nice. And we're going to get hopefully pretty deep into music today. Um, but there was something you just said there that I think was um, important about this conversation that's happening um, not only like with within the person, like if you listen to an album, right, There's a and you like zone into it, there's a conversation going on in your own mind, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then there's this sort of conversation that's going on between the artist and the listener, Right. And sometimes the artist is trying to convey something very specific. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, recently in the last, I don't know, 10 years, my my favorite genre is heavy metal. Mm -hmm. And in the last like 10 years or so, there's been a huge influx of uh, bands coming out with very um, quantum oriented lyrics and meanings and depth. Mm. And so even heavy metal is like branching into exploring deeper states of consciousness and trying to figure out a way to like communicate that to the listener in a way that says like, Hey, you can expand all this stuff. Like you don't know shit, you know? And and sometimes that's uh, sort of right up front in the music, right? If there's lyrics or um, certain types of music are sort of really straightforward about this is the message of this, what I'm trying to, and then you think of uh, more music that's more instrumental, right? And that there's still a conversation there, but uh, a lot of that's happening inside your your own mind, right? You're 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 having that conversation. You don't necessarily know what the artist was thinking or trying to convey, but you can maybe feel it. Um, and so, how much of that is generated by the music itself? How much is that is generated within your own mind? I think is is really an interesting thing to think mm-hmm. about. And and I've I have thought about that a lot. You know, um, music is one of my favorite things one of my favorite additions to life in general when i'm in a an ordinary state of consciousness or an altered state music always uh, helps it, it it amplifies you know the experience itself it provides more meaning for me um and i don't know where i was going with that but but it's oh yeah so as so i always had this this question in my mind you know if if an artist is trying to get a certain feeling across right in in um music without lyrics so the artist has his own feeling when he's creating it and when he listens to his own music it creates a certain feeling in him um i've also also wondered um is the artist like trying to achieve that same state in someone else or is everybody experiencing it differently in their own way based on you know their own 
body and, and how they interact with it. And maybe the artist's feeling that he's trying to convey never really is that actual thing. I think it's really both, right? So there's the the artist's conception of, of what that music feels like and, and how they want it to feel when somebody listens to it. And I think some of that's always going to get through because it's music, right? Music has a certain tone or a certain pitch or a certain feeling when you when you hear it. And I think everyone probably has a similar um, response to that music, whatever that may be. Um, you, you said you, you listen to a lot of heavy, heavy metal. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a very similar re- reaction to that music. Um, but then there's that other side of that conversation, right, that's happening in your own mind that's going to color it in a different way or it's going to have some sort of... Uh, Sometimes it's memories, right, where it's bringing up certain memories for you, uh, depending on the music. Sometimes you have an attachment to a piece of music that's that uh, signifies a specific time in your life, and so I think all of those things come into play when you're um, not just listening to music, but you know, absorbing any type of art form, right? There's there's the message, or there's the um, you know the communication from the artist to the to the audience, and then there's the the conversation that takes place in the audience's own mind as well. Mm. That's fascinating how many like layers there are, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, I've always admired a mus- musicians in, in general, their ability to convey, um, you know, the ethereal, the things that you can't always describe with words. Sure. And being able to do that with such, I don't know, precision. Um, and I'm thinking of uh, one of my favorite bands, Tool, right now. Mm-hmm. And their new album, um, when I listen to it, like I feel the same, th- like every time I listen to the album all the way through, I feel some of the same feelings at the same spots. So I know like, uh, you know, the, the band is, is hitting me in, in a certain way. It's almost like they're bending time and space literally with the tones that they're putting out and it's creating this vibration in me Yeah. Um, where it's consistent. It's every single time, but you know, I may listen to it one day and the meaning will be something to me and I'll listen to it two weeks later and the meaning will be something totally different. Sure. And so, like, what does it bring up for you yeah. as you're listening to it? A lot of that has to do with the, your state of mind, you know, as you're, as you're listening to it, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can, I love to use music to, to change my state of mind. A lot of times if I'm not feeling quite right or if I'm having a rough day, um, uh, when it's time to make dinner, I'll throw on like uh like uh, there's a trumpeter I like, uh, Hugh, Hugh Masekela. He's this African trumpeter. And every time I hear the sound of his trumpet, it makes me happy. And so it's an easy way to flip my mood and my, you know, my the way that I'm interacting with the world around me is to just throw on a certain type of music. And it works every time. Every mm-hmm. time I hear his trumpet, I feel happy again. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's like a... Well, I mean, it literally is a way to like modulate how you feel, mm-hmm. um, just like you know, any other thing we use—meditation, exercise, drugs, whatever. Um, but it's also—I don't know—it works on it works on its own level. Like I've been looking into—have uh, you ever heard of cymatics? Uh, it's, it's the—I think it's defined as the study or the science of um, like sound pattern geometrics things like that and so a lot of the experiments they do they're they're vibrating these metal discs mm-hmm. at certain hertz with sand on them and then they're creating certain shapes you've seen I have it. seen that yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so um 
sound works on like those kind of levels, right? With like down to frequency and vibration and have that ability to affect uh, everything because sure. that's what everything's made of. Look at a molecular level, yeah, right? Like, exactly. You know, and, and so how is that acting on me? I have no idea, but it is, you know, you feel that and mm-hmm. you, you can feel it sort of, especially so, you know, you think about being in a room where there's a, there's a really big sound system, right? And you, you, you really can't interact with, it's harder to interact with the people around you. And so your interaction is, is with the music and I, yeah, when you can feel it on a, on a, a molecular level, I think uh, it has a, a much greater impact. Or when you're listening to music in headphones, I think it has a, has a similar impact, um, which you see with a lot of sort of um, psychedelic therapies, right? Where, you know, it, almost all of them have some component where you're listening to music. Sometimes it's on loudspeakers, but in most cases it's through headphones. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, brain spotting is a, is a, a therapeutic technique that, that uses that where the it sends the it pans the music back and forth between from right to left and in doing so i'm not a therapist so i don't know that i'm going to get this exactly right but uh in doing so it sort of lowers you into a um, different state of mind where healing can take take place and so um, is it like a hypnotic or a, a state of a greater level of suggestion or something yeah it's like an offshoot of, of emdr right okay. so where emdr will use the the paddles in mm-hmm. the hands and, and and go right to left right to left um while you're talking through some traumatic experience brain spotting uh really will just find the sort of spot in your body that is affected and then you focus on that spot and then you listen to music and headphones and it bounces it back and forth from right to left and it sort of puts you into this space where you can start to heal wherever that um you know trauma is trapped in your body mm-hmm. And what is it about the headphones themselves? I mean, when I, I mean, right now we're sitting here, we're, we have our headphones on, and I heard uh, I'm a fan of Joe Rogan, so I listened to his podcast. Mm-hmm. And the other day, he said with his um, with his guest, uh, you know, we're sitting here with our headphones, and because like we're not just here in the room together, like you're literally in my ear. Sure, we're. like the headphones <laughs> makes it makes it more um, intimate, more. Um, I don't know. It's it's a different space. We're connected electronically right now through these wires, right? They run through all this system, and you and I are, like, connected. Mm-hmm. Um, things could be going on outside right now. Things could be going on in your living room, and we would have no idea. All we have a, an awareness of is this little space where we're in. And that connection right there just reminded me of the connection you get when you go to, like, a live show, right? Sure. You're listening to the loud music. Like yeah. you, you can't really talk to the person next to you. and. You know, the world could be on fire outside the stadium, but you're just connected to the music. Maybe that's the thing is when you wear these sort of headphones and it's not the same with earbuds, I don't think. Um, For me anyway, like I have to have an over ear apparatus. That's interesting. I'm the same. Earbuds don't have the same real effect on me. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm thinking, um, you know, maybe it's more of a direct connection with the artist and what they actually intended you to hear what sounds sure maybe it's just blocking out all of the exterior Mm. distractions right it's really central so especially if you're doing like with uh with uh eye shades on as well and headphones you know you're locked in you're you're it's all internal at that point it's the music is coming through straight in and you know you you don't have any other stimulus other than what's coming into you Mm -hmm. and you have no distractions from the outside i think that's probably um that's why i like it so much i love to have headphones on i have them on all the time Yeah, I think uh, I think I need to start using headphones more often. 
uh, I, I usually listen to music like when I'm exercising or something. So mm-hmm. I got to have something smaller. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Same. So yeah, like if I'll run, I'll, you know, I'll use ear- earbuds for those. Yeah. I mean, that's fine. Um, but like when I'm home, I have, I have headphones on a good, a good amount of the time. Mm. Often when, when my wife comes home or when Laura comes over, she, you know, I'm sitting there with headphones on. Um, a lot of times lately it's been working on more ambient music. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like a great way to, sort of meditate and relax is I'll spend a couple of hours working on ambient music and I'll just be in my headphones for a couple of hours. And it's just, it seems to be a real therapeutic thing to, to do. Sure. Yeah. It's almost like you put yourself in another world for a little bit, mm-hmm. like a meditation almost. Yeah, it really is. Like by the time I'm done, all of working on ambient music for that reason, almost, almost alone is, is it's a great reason to work on. I always feel happier and more content and calm yeah. uh, when I'm, when I'm done working on music for a couple of hours. That's awesome. Um, and you know, I, for those of you guys out there who, uh, don't know Jason, uh, dude, I've listened to your music and what you've produced live just for a group of friends. And it was, it was phenomenal, you know, and I'm, again, I'm speaking from a person whose primary listening genre is rock and heavy metal. And yeah. actually in the last like five years, I've transitioned more from, um, the heavier metal that I listen to with lyrics to now a lot more um, ambient mm-hmm. metal. So it's it's a whole new genre. Well, not new, but it's called post rock mm-hmm. or uh, ambient rock or something. Mm-hmm. So it's all the same metal riffs and, and yeah. things like that and long drawn out m- melodic guitar solos, but with no lyrics. Mm-hmm. And so again, like it's like the artists are trying to communicate a feeling, a message to you through their their skill level mm-hmm. on the on the instrument. I think, uh, yeah, trying to convey a, an emotion more than anything, right? Mm. Trying to connect on that emotional level um, when you're talking about that type of music, um, I think is is. I don't think it's easy to do, but yeah, I think that's. I think all artists are trying to connect on some emotional level. For me, and this is just my own. For me personally, the lyrics often get in the way. Mm. So if if I have lyrics, is you know, and, and they'll say this with some of these therapies, right? Like within the. Uh, ketamine assisted uh, psychotherapy right like you never use music with with lyrics because it will push people in a specific direction or pull them towards something that maybe they weren't you know shouldn't be uh, trying to deal with during that during that journey and i think having music where uh where there's no lyrics sort of allows them to just float to whatever topics they need to get to um, and i think the lyrics sometimes can get in the way mm-hmm. so when you're producing or creating your music um do you go into like what's your process do you go into it like i want the audience member to feel this feeling that i had this morning and so you create the music around the feeling or do you just kind of experiment with the music and see what the music creates and be like wow that one that beat or whatever made me feel amazing let's build off of that it a lot depends on on what i'm working on so Mm -hmm. um lately i've been working on some ambient music for uh, a local um uh, yoga teacher who is trying to put together some, um, uh, she's doing like guided meditations. And so that's very specific, right? So she has a guided meditation. She had, you know, she's speaking throughout the the track that I'm trying to put together. And so those two things got to mesh in some way. Right. And then on a certain level, that music really needs to be backgrounded as well, because you want to hear what she's saying. You want to, you know, she's, mm-hmm. it's a guided meditation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like that has to sort of be foregrounded. And so looking for things that are, going to be a specific feeling for that. Um, and then at the same time, trying to, um, honor 
um, what she's trying to do with the vocal piece of that. So that's a, that's one process. Um, so in this process, she gave you the, the lyrics first and you built the, the track around it. More or less. So I had started working with some sounds. We had talked about the project beforehand, okay. but she hasn't done with the, with the vocal piece. And so I had started working with some sounds that I thought would work, but until I heard what was said, uh, in the, in the vocal piece, I, you know, then I would sort of start constructing it around, mm. um, that part of it and making it tailored a little more towards what she was trying to accomplish. There was a lot of discussion, a lot of talk about water in the, throughout the piece was, so I was trying to think of like how that feels, not necessarily trying to like, you know, make water drip sounds or anything, but, you know, trying to like see if I could work with that idea of, of water throughout the. And recreate, you know, the sense of flow and, and uh, non-rigidity and, but, uh, you know, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, I listen to guided meditations all the time and um, there's certain points when the me- the uh, the facilitator like wants, you know, s- says a phrase and at the end of the phrase they want you to feel like this openness or connectedness mm-hmm. or like white light or whatever, whatever the, the phrase is. And so you can almost tailor the music to like crescendo at a certain mm-hmm. point and and mess with the you know the, the decibel levels at certain mm-hmm. points and and try and bring out some of those emotions i'm sure some of the conversations in the creative process were about like how do we want them to feel in this section yep. in this section exactly that's exactly how we kind of working so i you know i'd put it together for her and then sent it off and then she would get back to me and say hey you know at this point and she was really specific you know at like six minutes and 12 seconds you know if we could foreground the vocals and background the music a little bit more and, you know, notes like that. And so, yeah, we're trying to work together to sort of get that feel right. So when somebody listens to it, they can stay in that state through the whole thing. Mm -hmm. You know, the track is probably 13 minutes long and, you know, you want them, you know, it's a guided meditation. You really want them to be in that meditation for Mm -hmm. that amount of time. And music has a way, you know, if it's the wrong music, you're going to pop them right out and then it's kind of useless. Right. And I think that goes for any type of, um, meditation or therapy that has music you know the music has to be really right or i think it has the potential to have the reverse effect than what you're trying to accomplish right if it's trying to get to healing or trying to even you know if you're just meditating like trying to like stay in that meditative state for that entire time um if the music is wrong there's a point at the beginning of the track that i worked on with her where her um vocal got really loud in a spot and it really like popped out mm-hmm. you know and so that's an easy fix you know you just drop the volume down um but and you probably do some of that with your show where somebody like they get to a point and they talk real loud i don't even get that no in depth. <laughs> i mean i'll listen to the track at the beginning and if it's too like if my guest member is is uh not as loud as me like mm-hmm. i'll raise their decibel but that then i'll just i'll leave it for the whole track but that's exactly what i'm talking about yeah, right? yeah. like you know you have to make those adjustments because if you don't then you know it's, it's going to be weird to listen to right. where your voice is you know at a you know is quite a bit louder than the person you're talking to. And, and, and so it'd be distracting for the listener. And so I can think, you know, as I'm, as an approach, I'm always trying to think, you know, is this going to like distract them from the feeling that I'm mm-hmm. trying to, to, to get them to. I did. And this happens more than I like it to. Um, but a lot of people produce a lot of guided meditations online. Uh, there's people with lots of subscribers, and so there's there's definitely a market for it, and it's something that I've wanted to. I mean, I made meditations for coursework before. I've made some individualized meditations for clients before, with like specific visualization and imagery. But I always use, you know, standard medita- meditation um, backtracks or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, for the for the music. And um, 
I, so it's something that I that I think I would like to pursue as as like maybe a way to offer um, a little piece of myself to people who are interested in, in getting guided meditations. But mm-hmm. like I was saying, something that happens more often than I like it to is the meditation will be great that I'm listening to, you know, 10 minutes. I get really deep I'm thinking of one in specific this week that I it was all about ego dissolution. Mm-hmm. And so I'm getting to this place 10 minutes in where I'm like, I'm like one with the universe, man. And it's so awesome. And then the exit out of the meditative space is so abrupt. Like I'm mm. floating off in space. And instead of giving a little time to just unpack and, and explore that, he says, if you like today's meditation, please <laughs> like and subscribe. And I'm just yeah. like popped ah. back into this world yeah. so abruptly. No. And it's like, oh, man, like I almost wish I didn't have the first experience because now I'm all yeah, you jolted. Want it to be a much more gentle transition yeah. from at least uh, like count from, backwards or from something. one with the universe to like, you know, back to life. for yeah. sure. And in fact, that was one of the notes she had given me. It was, can you extend the track past the end of the vocal part mm. by about four minutes? Nice. Um, and so it's just music and it's a real gentle sort of, you know, outro to get, you know, to the end of that. And so, yeah, so there isn't that sort of abrupt shock. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, I think when you're in these meditative states or altered states, or if you're just listening to music, that's the last thing that you want is for, mm-hmm. you know, that have this like really abrupt thing happen where you're popped out of this emotional state that you've been in for however long. So if you don't mind, let's jump right into altered states talk sure. and altered states specifically, you know, related to music. And there's all sorts of directions we can go from here. Um, I'm one to believe these days that almost every moment of our lives, we're in some sort of altered state. Um, you know, that I don't even know. You're drinking a sparkling water right now. And even though we just think of it as water, you know, there's probably little molecules in there that are interacting with your body and therefore altering your state from when you got to my house. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're in an altered state. Um, So I take it like way broad out there. And, um, you know, I like to use the term non-ordinary state of consciousness a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, But music in particular is really good at altering your state. Uh, Like you said before, like using it as a tool to modulate your emotion, um, you know, to change your state if you wanted to. Um, But in in altered states work with things like psychedelic medicines and plant medicines and and theogens and all these things, um, I mean, I've heard it stated that psychedelics are nonspecific amplifiers. Mm -hmm. So whatever you're going into the experience with mentally is going to be amplified. If you're going in with anger, more. Uh, Happiness, more. All these things. But the music, as a conjunction to the therapy or a conjunction to a recreational experience, can help to shape, provide container, provide safe space for... those profound experiences to unfold. You know, I've been in psychedelic experiences with no music and I've been in psychedelic experiences with music. And I'll tell you what, I 100% prefer it with some sort of music, whether Mm -hmm. it be indigenous or electronic or whatever. Sure. Even if it's just background, right? Yeah. Something, something. Um, It's like something to hold on to. I think it's a little harder to have those experiences uh, without, but I'm, always obsessed with music and so i always want it i always want music mm-hmm. um whether i'm in in a, a non-ordinary state or not um, i always kind of want music around so um i always have music around so I, I guess i haven't had so many experiences without it um 
how, how is that, how has that shaped you? Like, you know, having this experience without it, how, how is that different for you to, to do it? Um, wow. Well, a lot, a lot was brought up when you said that. And, uh, I think that's how a lot of us live our lives is, um, you know, here in the West, at least we always have something in our ear, whether it's the TV on or music or something. Um, but my, and my experiences of having none of that are getting fewer and fewer, which is Mm -hmm. really quite sad. Um, because that's how human existence has been since the beginning is, um, you know, lots of time spent in nature with nothing but Mm -hmm. the sound of nature. Um, so my experiences without music, I think, they, I don't know, it feels like they connect me to a different part of myself, if that makes sense. Music definitely mm-hmm. connects me to, to a part of myself, um, but it feels different than the connection that I get to myself um, when I'm absent sure. of it. Uh, and I think, you know, I hate to put words to it and, and try and qualify it and put it in a box, but... Um, when I am listening to music, it seems like the connection with myself that I'm gaining is um, understanding of self in relation to my ego and self in relation to others around me, right? So that connection is explored. Whereas when I'm you know, alone up in the mountains mm-hmm. and I don't hear anything but the wind through the trees, um, I get a connection with myself that's like a connection to the grandness of everything mm-hmm. else mm-hmm. out there, you yeah. know? Yeah. I think there's something <laughs> to that, right. Where I think music causes us to go internal, mm. um, or to look for a connection with the people around us. Right. And so you can always connect through music and that's really fun to, to be around people who are, uh, experiencing that music at the same time. And I think that's why we go and listen to live music or go in places in, in, uh, experience music together right um but yeah it's either if, that's how i guess how it's been for me as well is, is either this internal thing that happens where you sort of go really inward um because of the music or you are experiencing it with the people who are with you um, with other people's internalities sure right so it's still an exploration of the internal yeah even when you're doing it with someone else yeah I like, uh, yeah, um, I just thought of the phrase, you know, music as maybe a, like a ve- an internal vehicle, mm. you know, so it, it provides transportation to the inside, Yeah, you know, and uh, the group gatherings, like, that's been around since beginning human history, drum circles sure. and dancing around the fire yep. and, you know, um, I was talking about this with one of my friends the other day about, you know, how how influential music is in most of our lives. And it's one of these things that transcends culture, transcends race, transcends all these things. Music tends to be a part of most people's life. Although I do know one guy who hates all music. Really? Yeah. And he's, he's, uh, he's an outlier in this case. For sure. But, um, yeah, it's like archetypal, right? Right. You know, we all have this going back through right. our histories forever and ever and ever. Yeah. Like this connection to a beat, to a rhythm, mm-hmm. to, um, to something, yeah. you know, whether that's the sound of you walking on a path or how you just mentioned the sound of the wind through the trees when you're, you know, this is, you know, maybe not so much music, but sound. Right. And so how do we interact with that sound and how does it impact us? Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, yeah, so the sound is, is one piece, but, um, you know, underlying structure pattern and like rhythm mm-hmm. is important. Like, um, one of the first things we learn in our mother's womb is the uh, sound of her heartbeat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and our heartbeat in relation to that heartbeat and the rhythms that they produce. 
Um, and then through like tribal drumming and music, like that's, that's part of what connects people around those circles is, is we can all get in the same beat. We can all get in the same rhythm. Right. So when you move from it just being sound and interacting with sounds that you're hearing, whether it's birds or whatever, and when when you move that to sort of uh, a structure and a rhythm, then it becomes communication. So then you're then it's sort of on this level of, you know, there's somebody producing this music, there's somebody making this music and they're communicating it to you. And then there's your reaction to that. So there's there's that sort of back and forth between uh, you and the person who's generating the music. Yeah, there's not much back and forth communication when you're just sitting there listening. (laughs) Right. But there's still a message. Yeah. (laughs) To be found. Yeah. No, that's interesting. The difference between sound and And I think that's one of the things I like so much about um playing music for people is is that sort of interaction is 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 really fun and and to see how it's affecting people and in different ways to to change the music up to shift it in a different direction and then to Mm. have that feedback um from the people who are listening i think is always really fun Mm. do you have uh like what's what's the biggest crowd of people that you've I've never played for a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. I'd say um, there was a stretch in Detroit before I left there um, for about nine months, almost a year, where we did a Friday and Saturday night after hours thing. Um, the last six months, it was just me DJing, so I was great. And, you know, we weren't drawing a ton of people. It was like two, three hundred people, but we were consistent at two or three hundred people. But two or three hundred people so, in, a, uh, in, the, in the right kind of space is, is, is a great amount of people um so those are probably the, the some of the funnest times i've had mm-hmm. djing for people um, but never any large groups but even that was just it, it was great to have you know every week to to be able to have that to go out to to be able to have that sort of interaction with with a large group of people yeah i mean even two or three hundred people that's that's a lot of souls you know um, yeah and so what is the experience like for you being up on stage and you know you said like um, for lack of a better term, manipulating, um, feelings in the room. Right. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can do certain things with, with your music and, and knobs and things to, to get people to have like ecstatic experience or, or, so you're up on stage and you're doing these manipulations. When you look out and you have that connection with the people, um, do you feel like collective energy off of them or do you, I mean, does it feel that way? Because I've been in those crowds before, and it sometimes just feels like we're all part of one wave. It, it depends, you know. Some nights it's where you know the things you're 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 you're, you're putting on the the motions you're trying to convey, the the communication you're trying to make is not falling in the right place, and mm. so you're searching for it, and you're searching for it, and is it going to be this or is it going to be this? How am I gonna how am I gonna connect with these people? Um, because everybody's different, and and you know you might not be playing the exact type of music that they want to hear, and so. Uh, there's that piece trying to like figure it out but when you do um and then you find it and you find like a a sound or a place or a groove that's like the right place for the right time during that night then it's great because then it's then the two start to feed off of each other and it becomes really easy um i think the biggest thing is to establish trust um Mm. and that's really hard to do i think uh if people haven't seen you before people don't know your music but i think it takes some time an hour or so usually to sort of establish that trust that, yeah, I'm going to take care of you. Like you're going to hear the music that you want to hear tonight. Um, it might not be the music that you specifically wanted to hear. It might be music that you didn't even know you wanted to hear, but eventually we're going to get there. So establishing that trust, I think is, is I think 
difficult to do, but once you've established that, then people will sort of follow you wherever you go with the music, and that gets really fun mm-hmm. because then you can take them really somewhere, someplace really deep, or you can take them somewhere really ecstatic, mm-hmm. or you you know you can kind of do both really. So, but the tr- the building of trust isn't done at all verbally, you mm-hmm. know. So it's felt, you know, and mm-hmm. you feel when the show starts like. Okay, this, you know, five minutes in, you can tell, like, the crowd is not uh, latching on yet. Um, So that's that's what I'm what I'm imagining, you know, standing on the stage, looking at these uh, this crowd of people, even a couple hundred people is is a crowd and um, not just feeling like singular energies out there different individual people like this guy feels sad and I'm looking (laughs) over this guy and this guy's really happy and that guy's fucked up and, you know, but. I, I assume you look out and it's just like a f- collective feeling of like the room doesn't feel connected yet. Or when it does hit, you're like, okay, the room is yeah. with me. Yeah. You know, even if not every single soul in there is sure. with you, uh, you can feel like a majority shift in consciousness, right? Yeah. yeah. I think and- I just find that interesting how, how it can, you can gauge that. Like it's an, it's like an extrasensory perception that you've developed. Yeah. Being able to be like, <laughs> like tune into a large group and be like, boom, sure. that's the moment. Yeah. And it's more, yeah, it is just sort of a feeling that you get um, when you, when you can, when you can find that we, we went and saw um, a DJ recently and she was playing all this really fun music, but it didn't look like she was having fun. Mm. And so we weren't having fun. Um, about halfway through, she started having fun and the whole thing started to pick up and you could see it happening in the room. As soon as she started like enjoying herself, then everyone in the room started enjoying themselves too. But I think she was maybe nervous and I think the first hour or so she was really struggling to, so she was really locked into sort of making the beats match and not so much into, uh, having that conversation with, with the audience. Mm. Yeah. And it's so amazing to see that that unity come together too when the when the whole audience you know picks up mm-hmm. what what she's throwing down you yeah. know um i remember being at a tool show at uh, red rocks and uh i had eaten some mushrooms that night or i don't know it was mushroom tea uh, my friend makes this amazing mushroom tea and um so we drank it together and uh you know we're pretty high up at red rocks so uh, i can't really see much of the stage but what I could see was the sea of people in mm-hmm. front of me, right? And so they're playing this song, and everybody's getting into it. It's a very melodic song. And all of a sudden, all the individual faces and bodies um, disappeared and melded into one fluid. Uh, and it was at nighttime. Most people were wearing black T-shirts, so it mm-hmm. was like a, blue, like a black ocean. Sure. And it was undulating in perfect harmony and perfect rhythm with the song, with the music. And uh, it was just so amazing for me to see that from the top and say, like, holy cow, like, however many thousands of people here, like, we're all in flow together. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not like an individual flow state experience. This is like, like, yeah. and Tool is doing this to us. Sure. Like, they're the magicians here on stage, like, bending time and space. Yeah, and it probably looked exactly the same at, like, the quantum level, right? Yeah. You go all the way down to, you know, is that sea of, like, motion. Yeah. And, yeah, and in. in, in I, I think music is one of the only ways that we have to sort of access that feeling. Mm. Yeah. And really feel that field, you know, mm-hmm. those vib- vibrations and frequencies and wavelength that yeah. everything's made up, but we can't see, yeah. but we can connect on that music level. taps us right into that yeah. feeling of that sort of undulation of uh, energy that is sort of, you know, the undercurrent yeah. of everything. So if you're up on stage, what's an example of like, um, 
a set of feelings or, or something that you, you might want to share with the audience, like um, just an example of what, what that may look I like. I think it just depends on the, you know, a lot depends on the, on the setting. Right. And so, um, you know, when I was, was DJing at like, you know, for these two or 300 people weekly, um, that was a certain thing that we were kind of going for. And we were kind of known for doing a very specific thing, which was a sort of like deep music, slower, um, you know, trying to convey sort of a, you know, take them to trying to grab them and then take them to sort of this deeper place um, was kind of my was the approach that I was taking there. Um, when you saw me DJing at my house, that's totally different. Um, and there were different parts of the night that were different types of music. Um, OK, so that night, since I have memory of that night, can you give me an, uh, some examples of like how throughout the night you you tried to change the mood of the atmosphere? Sure. So when I first started, um you know, I first went down there to start playing. Um, there was a lot of really great conversations going on mm-hmm. down there. So, yeah. like, everyone was sitting in like, little in little yeah. clumps, having different conversations. right. And so, there was all these great conversations, and I didn't want to interrupt that at all. So, I tried to play just like some down tempo stuff that was more background, right? Not play too loud, and then to allow those conversations to continue because it looked like everyone was having a great time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Um, then they kind of dispersed and I was on my own. And so then I just played stuff I wanted to hear for a while mm-hmm. um, because no one was really down there. And then people sort of regrouped and came back down and it seemed like more of a party at that point. And then I wanted to sort of jack it up at that point and start playing, you know, bumpier records and things that would make people sort of bounce and maybe even dance mm-hmm. a little bit. So higher energy. And then as it got more towards the end of the night, I was trying to sort of bring that into a more heady space where mm-hmm. um, I could cause more people to have more like internal experiences. Part of that was because I was wanting to have a more of an internal experience at that point. And so I was starting to play things that were more um, longer tracks that were taking longer to get to the point and things that were going to uh, take longer to coalesce and, and just things that were going to make people think more, feel more, mm. uh, but on more of a deeper level. So, mm-hmm. so there, there was all those different parts of the night and I was charged just gauging as people were coming in and out of the room where they were at and then trying to connect with where they were at in their own journey. Sure. No, I like, I like how you remain flexible like that. And you like, um, you adjust the music based off of what you're feeling and observing bait, not, not off like a, a set list. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, cause I mean, those experiences can shift and change so rapidly. Sure. And the, you know, the, uh, the musician in the room is sort of like this medicine man in the background that can help, modulate you know the atmosphere yeah you just reminded me of um i recently went and did uh, an ayahuasca ceremony and uh the person i went with had gone to this same person before to to, to do it and you know he was i was just you know asking him questions before because i had never done it and i was curious and a little nervous more than a little nervous um and he said you know uh, he didn't sing at all he sang three songs the whole night and the rest of it was just dark and silence mm. and i was like oh man um but he the night that we went, he ended up singing the entire night. I mean, for like five hours, he was singing like, uh, what are they like? Uh, Icaros. Icaros, right. Mm-hmm. So he was singing these like Icaros chants like for like five hours long. And it was great, though. I mean, it was, you know. Aren't they beautiful? It was really beautiful. Um, and so, you know, that was that experience. So he was that person in the background who, for whatever reason, felt like we needed more songs that night um, compared to the time that my friend had gone before. Sure. And those, uh, those Icaros, you know, I don't speak those languages. <laughs> I'm sure you don't either. Yeah. So, but you hear them and sometimes you can still like understand the meaning behind them or, 
uh, you can pick up on, you know, you'll be having this this experience with ayahuasca, and that's primarily an internal psychedelic, right? So you're having this mm-hmm. internal experience, and then certain points in the song or whatever, they'll make sounds, and it will change the visualization that you're having, mm-hmm. right? You'll, you may be in this awesome tryptamine palace with these flowing walls of geometric patterns, and you'll hear this little rattle or something in the background, and then it's like a snake will emerge from it and teach yeah. you some lesson. And yeah. so... The music, even though I'd never heard it, never been to that culture before, it connected me directly to what I felt was like their lineage. And some I talked with them afterwards, and they're like, yeah, some of the visions you were having are some of the ones that we have too. So without any understanding of their their, their um, where they're from at all, really, like I was tied in with their whole lineage and, and saw things that their ancestors saw yeah. based on the song. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think, <laughs> and, and I think that's the, kind of the way music works, which is really fascinating, is that it works on this other level. It works on this sort of subconscious or other type of consciousness level. It, it doesn't necessarily work on the, you know, in the prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. uh, space that we're used to, that we're using right now to have this conversation, right? It's working on this, in this other place, um, which I always think is really cool about mm-hmm. music. But yeah, it was, it was uh, astounding. Uh, as he would sing these different songs, the different mm-hmm. emotions that would come up or the different thoughts or the different images that would come mm-hmm. up as he was singing them. So you have um, experience in the world of uh, psychedelic-assisted therapies. Um, I don't know what variety necessarily you do, but I know you've been exploring like the connection between music and some of those therapies, ketamine-assisted therapy, uh, maybe, I don't know, psilocybin-assisted uh, therapies, things like that. And my curiosity is, um, because I have worked with these medicines and I know others who also work with these medicines and work with other people, you know, with these medicines. And so when, uh, when you're in a a psychedelic assisted therapy session and it's being facilitated by someone, a therapist uh, who's been trained, that person is in in essence uh responsible for the music Mm -hmm. right uh most of the time sometimes the clients are allowed to bring in their own music but in general we suggest um not having any sort of ties to it emotional ties to it and so the facilitator is creating this and i'm sure during experiences um you know because they last many hours sometimes you may have like a, a set list of 10 um, albums that you that you want to try and get to, um, but you're not so set in the set list that you're like you're guiding it for them, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're having an experience, and based on what you're picking up on from them, that's where where you're going to go next with the music. Um, I was wondering if you could describe like your experience with that and your uh, your process in in creation of those I, things. I don't have a ton. It's something I'm really mm-hmm. interested in, in in doing more of because I think that. Um, the music, as, as we've been talking, it, it's so impactful. And especially if this is, is to be sort of a therapeutic um, arrangement, I, I think it can be really problematic. Um, Michael Pollan talks a, a bit about it in, in, in his book uh, um, about how, you know, the, the music, as he was trying to go through these, um, you know, these assisted therapies with, with different people was problematic for him. I mean, he only really speaks of one piece of music that really resonated with him, which was a piece of classical music. Mm. And so Mm -hmm. you've got these different people where, you know, certain musics aren't going to resonate with them. So I think they're maybe ought to should. I agree with the the thought that you don't want them bringing their own music Mm -hmm. because you've got connections to your own music that 
are going to be automatic, right? So if I hear a certain piece of music, it, it's always going to take me back to, to that memory, a certain right? thing. Yeah. Um, you know, cert- there's certain songs that remind me of my wedding. There's certain songs that, you know, you have these memories and they're, they're linked with music and they're always going to be linked with that music. And so if you bring that music, you're going to end up thinking about that thing. And then maybe that's not the thing that you really need to be working on. And so I don't think people should bring their own music to these therapy sessions. But I feel like they should have some input into maybe the type of music that works for them because I mean like that conversation should happen between them and the therapist where like what do you definitely not like and like if I was in a session and right. someone put on a country song like I would flip out right I would have a, it, you know or, yeah. or, or some people don't like electronic music you yeah, know I'm, I'm totally. very specific with the type of electronic music I like and that's not everybody's like cup of sure. tea and so I don't you can't just foist that upon everybody and sort of force them through that uh you know to, to listen to that music if it's not going to operate on the level that they need it to operate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I think maybe having some sort of conversation about what types of music, what types of sounds will work, um, I think is probably important. And I don't know that that's really being done, but it's something I'm really interested in exploring more of and then creating um, music as well. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested. I see a lot of people um, um, using a lot of ketamine these days. And so I'm really interested in like what types of music work for for, for ketamine. So I've been writing more music with that thought in mind. You asked about my process earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, lately I've been really thinking, okay, like how do these sounds work? You know, I've, I've, I've experimented with, with ketamine and I kind of have an idea of what, what types of sounds work and, and that sort of thing. And so I've really been looking, you know, to produce music for ketamine assisted psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. So it's just sort of getting started with that, but, uh, really thinking a lot about that lately. Yeah. Um, well, I can tell you, too, from my own experiences with ketamine, um, I've had a vast uh, array of music played in those experiences. And um, each genre of music um, puts me in a different space, right? All on the same molecule, yeah. which is interesting. <laughs> right. And I can consistently go to that space if I put on that music, right? So, like, in my teen years when I was... Um, if it was like partying with ketamine, then it was uh, drum and bass music, right? Mm-hmm. And it would put me in a dancing sort of uh, like a floating on a cloud mm-hmm. disassociative state. Um, and it would facilitate that. And then later in my um, early 20s, it was mostly like um, mid 90s, like trance music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would take it like right before bed and lay in bed mm-hmm. and put on that music and have out of body experiences on ketamine very right. reliably. And then, um, you know, in, I don't know, in, in the recent, uh, history, um, I've been working more with like, um, that ambient rock and post rock stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, so not necessarily electronic music like in my past, but more rock music Mm -hmm. and experimenting with that. And, uh, I've listened to, you know, that new tool album a number of times all the way through, um, in those states of mind and just trying to see like, how do these different genres mm-hmm. change it. And it definitely takes you to different places. Right. This, uh, this non-specific amplifier yeah. idea, right? So, you know, the substance is the substance, the molecule is whatever it is. And then uh, how you construct the setting in the music being, mm-hmm. I think maybe the most important component of that, um, you know, that's going to, that's going to drive you in one direction or another, whether you're listening to classical or jazz mm-hmm. or ambient or whatever. There's almost like an ethical component tied in there too, that in order to be an ethical practitioner and you're responsible for the set and setting, 
like you really need to put more consideration yeah. into the music and sure. specifically tailoring it to the person, not having like, oh, I have a set ketamine list, I have yeah. a set list for this, I have a set list for this, but uh, really tailoring it to the person and putting that time in. Yeah, the, the therapists that I know that are doing these therapies, um, yeah, they're very particular about the music, then, and I think they're very thoughtful about um, the approach that they take. Um, but and I, they I, choose their, their music. I, right? but I think they do. I, I don't know totally, okay. but I would like to... I guess I would like to ask that question mm-hmm. of, of therapists to find out, you know, are you trying to tailor this to this, to this person or that person, or are you using the same things? And I think, I think there may be something behind trying to cha- tailor it to the type of music that's going to um, work for them. Mm, I think there's an exploratory research study there. Sounds like it. <laughs> nice. Um, so yeah, I had this idea too. Um, I don't want to venture too far from, uh, my heavy metal experience, but I had this idea too that, uh, you know, I've explored, um, altered states with, um, heavier music and I tend to like, um, heavy metal because, you know, I started out listening to trash music in like sixth grade until, uh, my skater friends introduced me to punk rock. Nice. And then I got into that and, um, I mean, punk rock is great in a sense of, like, it lets you feel the emotion, some of the emotion. Uh, And at that time in my life, I had a lot of anger, so that's a perfect Mm -hmm. outlet for that. But the technicality of the musicianship was not always Mm -hmm. top-notch, and that was something that I really didn't appreciate about the genre. Um, And so I transitioned from punk rock to heavy metal because the intricacy at which they play their instruments sure. is like classical. Most of, most of those heavy metal artists are classically trained mm-hmm. um, and they're super intricate. Like most people couldn't play them because they're so fast or so, you know, so mathematical. But um, I wanted to explore. So in my own um, exploration of self, I use a lot of, you know, this instrumental rock that's really intricate, uh, very emotional, uh, emotionally charged, and a lot of heavy metal is emotionally charged. That's mm-hmm. what people get from it. Um, but I wanted to maybe put together like a self-experiment with uh, a group of friends where, you know, they knew what they were getting into before they come up, you know, before they before we meet somewhere and, and have this experience. But have like a group uh, altered state experience um, with selected heavy metal music in the background as opposed to other genres mm-hmm. and just see what happens. Like, yeah. does that generate different conversations? Does that generate uh, dancing? Does mm-hmm. it, what, it, what it would happen if For that, sure. and uh, yeah. So, I mean, what do you, what do you think about that idea? Experimenting with different genres? I think as an experiment, I think it's a, a great thing to do. You really want to, I think, you know, run the gamut, not just heavy metal, but you know, what, what does it, what does it do when you're listening to certain types of jazz or Classical, you know, there's yeah. so many oh, different, jazz, yeah. you know, there's certain, there, there's so many different ways you could go. I'd be really interested to see like what comes out of those experiences. If you, if, if you try to recreate the, try to uh, control for everything else mm-hmm. and just change the music each time. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's same set, same setting, same people and, and, and just try to change the music each time and see if mm-hmm. other different stuff comes up. Same substance. Yeah. Yeah. Same amount, same dose, right? Like yeah. all those things. Really control for everything except sure. for the music. Um, yeah, that would be. Uh, I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. Um, and I know uh, you know heavy metal is not really your genre, your favorite genre. But if if you were presented with an idea like that to go, so I call it uh, the psychedelic ex- exploration of rock music. And uh, if you knew what you were getting into, and you were invited to something like that, like what would be some of your thoughts that would come up? Um, 
anticipatory, excited, kind of like, oh my God, what am I getting myself into? <laughs> like, what would you, what would you think? And, I think maybe all of those, yeah. uh, but I, you know, I'm open to exploration. And so, oh. and I'm open to, to all musics, right? I have, you know, certain music that I always go to, um, you know, whether it be, there's certain jazz artists, like I mentioned before, electronic for sure is something I'm always listening to. Um, I really like, uh, there's a lot of African artists that I really like, um, mm. Tony Allen, who comes from Femi Kuti, um, you know, things like that, 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 that I listen to all the time. Um, and those are pretty constants in my life. But I think that all genres of music have something, you know, mm. there's always, you're, you can always find something that resonates with you um, within all. I've never listened to a type of music that I wasn't able to find something that I liked about it. Mm. Except for country music for me. There's some country <laughs> out there, you know, like I've never been a big country fan, but there's mm-hmm. like some country music that I listen to and be like, oh yeah, I like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can surprise yourself. Uh, you may find that sometimes, you know, there, there's some, I, I think some of the, uh, there was a stretch where uh, my wife was playing a lot of uh, Hank Williams mm-hmm. um, and I've never listened to country music, but mm-hmm. I don't mind Hank Williams. Sorry. Yeah. There's a couple Johnny Cash songs. <laughs> Johnny Cash, I think it's great. Yeah. yeah. But it's a different kind of country. Like, For sure. yeah, what I talk about, I'm talking about the like twangy stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah. But again, within yeah. that genre of music, there's there's a way to sure. To, well, to, uh, yeah, you know, and you're saying like connecting to it, right? Like, I still connect to country music, but in a way that I don't enjoy, right? Like when I hear it, it always makes me sad. Like it connects me to that sadness button, you know. And that's something I don't like to intentionally put myself in yeah. if I don't have to. Yeah. And so maybe that's why. I avoid it like the plague well maybe there's something there maybe you should maybe you should have an experience oh, uh and all state experience with just country music oh man i don't know it might, I, might be challenging but uh you might get something out of it it would for sure be challenging i think that's a good place for us to take a quick commercial break and uh we'll be back for section two all right take a quick break from conversations with the mind i just want to let you know that this award-winning episode of the podcast is brought to you by mind ops so go check out the mind ops website m-i-n-d hyphen o-p-s now back to the show okay welcome back to segment number two conversations with the mind episode 70 with jason now um so there's a couple different directions i want to take this I think before I, because I definitely want to get into your history with music, how you sure. got into it, and the Detroit scene back in the day, that fascinates me. But before we diverge too far from what we were talking about before the break, I want to ask you, um, or maybe have you asked me questions of interest uh, for you. You said you were exploring specifically uh, music for the ketamine space. Mm-hmm. And um, there are certain sounds certain um uh tempos um certain feelings in music that i tend to prefer with that medicine in particular mm-hmm. uh or that tend to give me like the most uh the clearest visualization right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is sort of my best way of learning in those spaces it's not so much the feeling cuz i'm really disconnected from my body but it's really the visualization component of it mm-hmm. what am i seeing and what information is being downloaded to me um so for me like um um mixtures between um so the way i could describe it is uh sharp sounds sharp mm-hmm. sounds almost like like if you were to think of like um sheets of ice or uh, sheets of glass Mm -hmm. and sharp cracking sounds or or breaking sounds Mm -hmm. or, you know, um, 
that's the only way I can describe it. I know exactly what you're talking about. Some of those visualizations, you know, come up in those spaces where it's almost like a cold space because you can't feel your body mm-hmm. and it has like a coldness to it. So that in particular. And there's like outer space component. Yes. It's like this cold place as well. Yeah, like spacey, uh, like sh- like shattering sounds, but with like echo behind mm-hmm. it almost. So there's those components that give me really clear visualization. And then there's other parts, um, and you you know from your own experience that these these aren't linear experiences, you know, they don't mm-hmm. start somewhere and then end somewhere and then go back down. Like it's like a roller coaster mm-hmm. uh, and different medicines are even more so like that, right? Like psilocybin's like up, down, up, down, you'll go mm-hmm. in and out of the experience. And then it's like external and yeah. internal and in, in doing that. Yeah. Well. And so same in the ketamine experience. I mean, it's, it's high, it's, somewhat predictable um as far as like you know this length of time after the initial injection is probably when you're going to peak like within Mm -hmm. the you know within this 45 minute to one hour piece is is usually the peak time so um like facilitating in that way to knowing when those experiences are going to happen and also knowing like when the peak is over and people want to start coming down Mm -hmm. so then going from like the sharp visual uh, music or imagery to um, softer sounds uh, in the ketamine space, almost like um, like cloudy, mm-hmm. um, yeah, mystical, almost like like you're like you're walking through a forest with fog. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Well, I think you started with uh, this idea of, of coldness and ice, mm-hmm. and, and I think yeah, as you're as you're moving into it. It, it yeah these sort of sharper sounds and more intense sounds right you wanted to have this this sort of intense uh experience and I, I think those facilitate that and then moving like more you know as as people are sort of coming off of it and coming down moving into like warmer sounds um mm. more bass more you know deeper sounds that are going to sort of uh gently bring you back into your body right mm. so you talked about this move out and sort of it is this sort of move out into outer space into this cold place where you're 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 disconnected from your body completely and then move back into your body where i've heard it talked about that way like oh i have a body Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's that stretch where you don't realize that you that you actually have a body and then eventually you sort of come back into the into your own body and and sort of what types of sounds and what types of music can can facilitate this sort of gentle return Mm -hmm. um, back into yourself so you would say the bass is more warm and like grounding. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would be the opposite of that? The sharper sounds would that be uh, sharp treble sounds? Or? Yeah, or like piano is a great example. Oh, okay. You know, sort of the higher the higher uh, pitch, uh, the higher range of the the piano. I think is a good way to think about those icy yeah. sort of tones. Um, Probably higher pitches of guitar as well. Would yeah, they produce could be like, that. Uh, plucked guitar can yeah. if you're using sort of these these higher uh, tones as well can can produce that same sort of idea. But yeah, I think about those as I'm as I'm producing as I'm thinking about starting to produce music mm-hmm. for for uh, for ketamine therapy is is thinking in terms of uh, in those types of terms as well mm-hmm. and what uh if, what's the name for the specific genre that you like to produce um, or is it a, a mix of a couple i'd say it's mostly like i think ambient kind of covers it it's a pretty broad ambient electronic broad, though, right? electronic yeah okay. so you know i'm not a musician by any stretch okay. <laughs> you know i'm not classically trained and you know i couldn't play an instrument at all but i can I can make the computer spit sounds out, mm-hmm. um, and that's usually the the approach that I take. And so, a lot of it is just hunting for the sound mm-hmm. that you're looking for. And so, you're just searching through hundreds and hundreds of sounds, you know, until you find the one. Oh, 
that's the warm sound I'm looking mm. for. And then you pull it in and then you try to start constructing it um, into some sort of rhythmic pattern that's going to work with the rest of what, you're, what you've produced already. And I've seen your setup uh, far too complicated for my tiny technical brain. Um, but yeah, you've got like a computer screen in front of you and then you've got like a soundboard next to you and I see all sort of lit up dials and stuff when you were playing in the, in the basement you know i would go stand behind you and just look at all the things that are going yeah. on it's like it's like you're trying to fly an airplane it's you know, really not as complicated as it looks. i'm sure it isn't uh, like once you set it up yeah. once it's set up it's really it's really simple and in a you know back when we were all analog it was way easier you had two turntables and a, a mixer and you put a record on and then you mix into the other one and that's more or less maybe with know. a couple of little samples like this yeah, you know, and it started getting more and more and that. And then some of, you know, there are artists out there who are doing way more with it where they're doing um, live production and live editing of their own music mixed in with like other, you know, there's people that are out there doing way more than what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just like mixing from track to track. That's kind of always been, even when it was analog, that was always what sure. I wanted to do is just find two pieces of music that um, fit together rhythmically. So, you know, you're mixing on a, di- a few different in a few different ways. So one, trying to find, you know, one where the beats match up, but also where the sounds from one are filling the space in the other, right? So the space between the beats, um, the other track is filling that space. And then by doing that, you can get the two tracks to talk to each other. Mm. And, you know, when you get, when you get two tracks talking to each other, where you've got a piece from this one and a piece from that one, and they're both saying different things, but they're, it's almost like a conversation happening between the two records. Mm-hmm. That's when it's really fun. And there is like a, a math component to it too. I mean, when you're matching beats, you can go down to, you know, and I don't know these terms, but like four, four, or four, seven or whatever, and, and find two songs that have those same basic structure. Um, and then search for, you know, beyond the math. Like what is the, what is the feeling that the combined mathematics produces as opposed to the two separate, produce their own feeling and now you're producing like a whole new yeah. blended feeling yeah. and so that's the other piece of it that is like thrilling when when you're when you're mixing is when you when you get them on beat um the pieces that are hitting in the same spot so usually that's going to be the kick and in, in all all techno is 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 on that four four time signature and, okay and that's what makes it mixable is because it's always going to hit in those in those four places and so when you get a a, a kick drum from one record and a kick drum from the other to to hit in the same place they implode mm. so it's not producing double sound it almost like produces this one sound and it's a combined sound from the two kick drums and you can feel that sort of compression mm-hmm. of the two kick drums and that's uh, that's super fun too especially if you have a really big sound system you can you can feel the mm-hmm. the, the implosion you can feel that compression happen uh, in your body and that's yeah that's, so that's like a crescendo that's like when two waveforms meet exactly and then they amplify exactly yeah and they kind of become this one sound and that's mm-hmm. that's the other really fun part of of mixing mm. Yeah, so you know, integrating. So you got these two tracks that you're you're meshing together on your on your um, on your electronics in front of you, and say you want to like um, integrate 
some of those sharp sounds or some of the some of the deeper sounds could you like sample that stuff into the tracks that are already playing and learn to to manipulate like smaller details in a live setting that way yeah so i'm not that talented okay but, uh, people are out there doing that for sure okay so <laughs> nice you can do uh, that but yeah it's totally doable with the technology that exists uh but you know that's not uh, something i'm capable of cool. doing just yet um and i don't know that i ever will be i really just like sort of finding two things to, to that sound good together and, and mm. putting them together and then really thinking more directionally like if i'm playing for a group of people like what direction am i trying to head in do i want to like take this up and make people all hyped up or do i want to try and like take them to some deeper place um so thinking about it in that way as well mm. i wonder if there'll be a day where you mix three tracks together at once you can the setup i have is is you can put as many as four um nice <laughs> so but i haven't really tried to do more outside of uh, nice. just mixing two at a time yeah i took this class in my undergrad called the appreciation of music and you know they come with these cds and we you know they're all different genres and we have to listen to them throughout the the year and one of the tracks still one of my favorite i have it on my ipod but it is um it's a composition done um of like it's like 15 different conversations um from different people and then the the artist um sort of like chopped up all the conversations mm -hmm. and put them together so that you hear sort of these conversations but it's it's making a rhythm it's making mm -hmm. a song yeah um fascinating how that person did that and um the sort of feeling that it makes you feel um sort of in this interconnected world where data is floating around your head all sure. the time it's like oh there's there's a sound to that. Yeah. There's yeah. a couple of producers that I like that do things like that where they're pulling either like radio edits or things like that and then mixing them into the, the music that they produce. Uh, there's a guy out of Montreal, uh, Mark Leclerc, who goes by the name Acufen. Um, he does a lot of that. And then there's a, um, a hip hop, I, I, I guess they're more hip hop oriented, uh, Prefuse 73. And they do the same where they're pulling lots of samples from either radio or TV or other things and then making them into music. And I think that's, I think that's great because there's music all around us all the time. We've been talking about it earlier uh, about how, whether it's, you know, out in nature or whether there's always music around us. Um, you know, and especially if you're in like a, in a city, I think you hear that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Like if you're walking through a city, there's, there's music going on all around you. And uh, I think that's fascinating when people start grabbing pieces of that and then putting it in their music. Yeah. Picking up on the rhythms of life. Mm -hmm. That's pretty fascinating. Um, yeah, I can imagine, you know, some of those artists just carry around recorders with them and just like, I recorded a sure. dog taking a crap today because, yeah. you know, it sounded uh, like a sample. Uh, Bjork uh, has done a, a bunch of that. So where she was, um, I think one of her later albums, uh, was probably about 10 years ago, but um, she went and actually recorded a lot of uh, – uh, natural sounds from where she's from in Iceland. Mm. And so she would go out in nature and record these sounds and then was incorporating them into the music that she was nice. making as well. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so I want to get into uh, your upbringing in music and the Detroit music scene. And um, so I think your time in, in Detroit was a little bit before like my stint with techno mm -hmm. and, so mine was probably um, late 90s. Um, it's about the same time. Okay. And back then, um, you know, I was in late middle school years, and I mostly listened to drum and bass. So and some of the Where artists, were you? Uh, here in Colorado. Oh, in Colorado. So some of the biggest artists were Diesel Boy, mm -hmm. uh, Aphrodite, and then my favorite was uh, AK-1200. Um and back in those days, they had they was it was just the two turntables. Mm -hmm. It wasn't computer. Nope. Um, and 
I know that there's so many different genres of techno too, and I'm totally ignorant in this, Mm -hmm. in this way, but drum and bass was my, was my thing back then. And it's, you know, these things come in and come out like trends and new Mm -hmm. things are established. But, um, I guess what was, what was the scene like in Detroit in, and it sounds like the same time, late nineties, mid to late nineties. Maybe we started just a little bit earlier than that. So really my sort of musical education started when I was about 16 and and that's when I really started getting into music. Uh, I had been only into baseball prior to that. Mm -hmm. It was like baseball in the summer and hockey in the winter. And I guess around the time I was a sophomore in high school, I realized I wasn't that good at those sports Mm. and that I was going to need a new thing. Um, I really loved playing them, but I just wasn't, I wasn't going to play in in high school. I wasn't going to play in college. I wasn't, it wasn't going anywhere. So uh, I don't know. I just ended up with a group of friends that were into music. And so we used to go down uh, to a bar in Detroit called the shelter um, they had a Sunday night there for teenagers. You could do they had like a teen night there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sunday nights you could go down there and listen to this. So this was like a lot of post punk, like uh, Joy Division uh, bands like that. Um, a did, lot of did you live in Detroit or did you? No, so in? I so you know I grew up uh, <coughs> in a basically all white suburb. Like that's about ten minutes east of Detroit called St. Okay. Clair Shores. Um, and so was also that that was definitely a piece of it sort of just looking for something mm-hmm. anything that was not like milk toast you mm-hmm. know and so we stumbled into music we've you know we were all sort of starting to get into more like alternative music but um in industrial music so it's kind of started with that like listening to bands like ministry and like front mm-hmm. 242 and frontline assembly and and in bands like that so we would go down to the sunday night at the shelter um this teen night and listen to these bands and it was like a, i mean it was a rough bar it was like a skinhead bar and we would just go down there and Sunday nights and you know just because they had the music we wanted to listen to so that was kind of like the, my initial pull towards doing something interesting with music and um, after high school um, I just randomly got a call from a friend that I had gone to high school with and he's like hey we're doing this thing um, you want to come down and uh, bartend at it yeah sure why not and it was the first party I had been to this would have been like October of 1993 um, and it was like nothing I had ever seen before because it was like it was like in a dark room and it was techno, which I had never heard before. And there was a DJ and there was these turntables and everyone was on LSD. Mm-hmm. And it was like this experience that I had I didn't I had no concept that this was even a thing. And just so it's your first rave. Yeah, more or less. But I mean, in Detroit, it's hard to call them raves because it was like, you know, uh, small building with like 200 people in the basement of this building Mm -hmm. uh you know and it was just you know like one police light and and like a big set of speakers and that was it we had raves like that in boulder back in the day awesome yeah so you know that was kind of my start with with music and it was more just like i had this friend who had gotten into it and was like hey you want to go do this thing and so I don't know, the first four or five months, all I did was bartend or work the door at these events. Mm. Um, and that's kind of was my entry into 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 these gigs. So there was an artist group in Detroit uh, called Propeller, um, and they had this building called the Bankle Building that they just all did all kinds of crazy stuff in. And they started doing this series of parties there, and that's kind of when it really started taking off. So Now, were you participating in the parties too or just kind of sitting back watching as an employee? At first, for the first few months, yeah, it was more like just sort of working these gigs and then eventually would start getting more and more into them. Um, at the time in Detroit, um, so I'm not, you know, I'm not a techno music historian or anything, but I was, like I lived it, I was there for part of it. So I guess I know 
some of it. Um, so I came up with what's called the the second wave of Detroit techno. So d- techno was invented by these three friends uh, in Detroit. They all went to high school together. I had no idea it was invented in Detroit. Yeah. So it was uh, Derek May, uh, Kevin Saunderson, and Juan Atkins. Uh, these three friends. They went to high school together, and they they were so they were listening to like uh, there was a there was a Detroit DJ on the radio, and he was called the Electrifying Mojo, and he was playing all this crazy stuff, African bombada, Kraftwerk, all kinds of stuff, and so that was probably there in influence um at the same time you've got sort of this uh whole dj culture coming out of hip-hop at that time this would have been like in the 80s Mm -hmm. um when that's kind of happening and so that kind of influenced them and they took all of what was happening in the world and they created this new type of music called techno and it's it was really different from everything else that was happening at the time um at a certain point they all went off to europe because that was the only way they could make money you know, like I said, the, the parties in Detroit were like, you know, two, three hundred people. There wasn't like a big... There wasn't a big cry for it. No, not at all. And but so, in Europe, they've been doing that a lot longer. It got bigger there faster than it did in the States. Okay. So these guys all went over there to start, you know, making a living at what they love to do and sort of left a void in Detroit in terms of music, right? And so the second wave of Detroit techno kind of came and filled this void um, in particular. Um, so it was like, Carl Craig and Kenny Larkin and Richie Houghton. And so Richie was the guy that um, we all knew. Um, he was kind of our sort of, uh, uh, he, he, he was sort of the best DJ around. And he sort of came in and filled a lot of that void. So his, he started throwing parties and they started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when I say bigger, the, the biggest party he threw was his first live performance um, on an album called Spastic. And it was like 1,200 people, which was a giant party in Detroit. And that's his at the time, it was as big of a party that they ever had there. And so, um, but we would follow him and, and, and that's kind of how we really got got into it and started uh, started getting more and more into the music. How do you think, or why do you think it took off in Europe before it really took off here? I mean, are Europeans known for being more progressive, more ahead of the curve with some music? Yeah, I don't know. It's just... Yeah, uh, I think of like David Bowie and... Potentially. I, like I, I don't have a real good answer for why mm. um, that happened. I just know that it did. Mm. And so They were just ready for it. Yeah, maybe just more ready for, for that type of music, for this new style of music. But um, it's definitely come back, and it's definitely come back to Detroit. So I have friends there still. Um, their group is called Paxahow, and they do, uh, they do a music festival called Music or, or Movement. And that's uh, been going, they've been running this for 15 years in Detroit, Mm. maybe more. Um, And it's one of the most well-respected music festivals in the world. People come from everywhere because it's Detroit. It's like a, you know, for techno, that's like, it's like a Mecca. It's a a Mecca and people want to go there and they want to, they want to be immersed in that culture and hear that music all at the same time. And they're great. You know, I would say 50, 60% of the artists that they book for their festival are local Detroit artists Mm. and they're, they've stayed true to that through the years. And it's one of the greatest festivals around, you know, and everyone comes to that and everyone wants to see that and be a part of it and, and see Detroit music in Detroit. Nice. So you're getting into, you know, the second wave and you're following um, some of these DJs around and where does it go from there? Well, part of it was like, you know, this, the, the psychedelic experience was definitely, uh, you know, part of that as well. And so your, your psychedelic mine and all the people around me. So, you know, when we started doing these sort of these underground parties, um, you know, in Detroit, it was uh, the first 
few years, it was it was all LSD. That's all anybody was taking was mm-hmm. LSD. In fact, that was the first drug I ever did was was Me LSD. Um, Me too. And, Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Like before tobacco before, or alcohol yeah, or anything. That was that was it. Well, I guess I had drank and smoked before then, but you know, the first like you know real substance I had taken was mm-hmm. was LSD and had taken it at one of these one of these parties, and so that was definitely part of that culture and sort of having these sort of profound community musical experiences um, was really sort of uh, foundational for me and for a lot of us. Um, and, you know, I'm connect- I'm, I don't know that I'm really close friends with any of these people, but um, I feel connected to them to this day because of it, because we had this sort of community experience. Mm. Like we were talking before, this feeling that the communication between the, the DJ and the, the, the people on the dance floor. And, you know, that was like a weekly event for us, you know, um, taking LSD and, 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 communicating through music well so uh, during the second wave in detroit um you're still working the club right or are you or are you doing more of the music at that point at that point we started getting more into to to doing our own parties and throwing our own parties and 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 sort of producing these things um and i wasn't um i wasn't really even djing then i kind of just started around 1995 and so but at that point, I hadn't really played out in front of people, and so it was just really um, starting trying to facilitate. One of my one of my main things was finding buildings, mm-hmm. and so I would find buildings for us to have parties in. And one of the buildings that I found, and I can't take full credit, it was really uh, a friend, Stephen White, came up with this idea. Um, they had uh, there was a you know the the automobile called Packard. Uh, so they used to in Detroit. They used to build these Packards. Okay. Um, they went out of business, I think, in the fifties. Um, and so, but there's still an automobile plant, plant there called the Packard Automobile Plant, and it's probably about a hundred thousand square foot of space. Um, uh, and it's right on the corner of Mount Elliott and I ninety four, like right in Detroit, and um, it's actually right by the incinerator, which is a great place mm-hmm. to be throwing parties. Um, but we found this building. Uh, they were doing paintball out of it. Nice. And we were looking for a spot and my friend Steven was like, hey, why don't you check that place out? Um, you know, they do paintball out of there. They got to be willing to like, you know, and sure enough, they, you know, we would pay the guy 500 bucks and he would let us throw, do whatever we want in this nice. building. And so there were probably 50 parties in this one building and it's where they used to build the old uh, Packards, which is really cool. I think it would have been cool if... Um you could have asked the paintball guy like to switch over to glow in the dark paint yeah, right. <laughs> so that all, all the daily business yeah. like helps amplify the experiences that yeah. happen at night too. When yeah. you turn off the lights. Yeah, for sure. Well, one of the parties we did in there, I told you we, we did his, uh, Richie Houghton's first, uh, live set was there. Um, and, uh, his, uh, alter ego, I guess was, was called plastic man. So, uh, he was the, the album was, was the artist's name was, was plastic man on it. And we hung, plastic throughout the entire building i mean Mm. it was like all black plastic through the whole thing so you so when you walked in from the entrance you were it was like through a tunnel of black plastic and then every wall and every ceiling in the entire building was covered in black plastic for Mm. the party and it was like outrageous like to see uh it was really a, a a sight to behold i say was that uh easy or difficult cleanup uh, it was really difficult. It was really difficult to hang too. Uh, yeah, I so bet. we went. I mean, we were there for day, like the whole weekend, like hanging plastic for, mm-hmm. for days um, on these big rolls. We would roll them out and mm-hmm. then pull them up on these big ladders and uh, and hang them up. It was brutal. Yeah. So, but, but we would it. really go out for these parties, you know. And then uh, that, uh, and then Richie's brother Matthew would do uh, always do an ambient room at these parties as well. So people mm-hmm. would have a place to go and like chill out. And so then the ambient room would be all like white parachutes and foam on the floor so that people had a nice place to to find a place to rest. That's nice. Uh, yeah, I've been to some parties where that is not an option. Yeah, and for you, sure. And, you can't find a comfortable place to sit down. Yeah, and those um, 
those chill rooms, uh, the ambient rooms, yeah. I think are so crucial because for sure, I mean, if you just take sometimes you just need like five or ten minute break just yep. to kind of be with yourself, and then you can get back to for it. Sure. You know, and it's funny. I was I heard an interview maybe uh, six months ago of uh, these guys from Paxaha that do the the music festival, and they were all lamenting uh, that nobody does ambient rooms anymore. They're really hoping uh, to start a trend to, to to bring back this idea of doing ambient rooms. But I think having both is like really important. Nice. You know, you want to like cater to like. Uh, this journey that people are on and uh, you want them to be able to to at least get something out of it Mm -hmm. maybe in my um idea for psychedelic exploration of rock music i gotta have an ambient room too with with maybe just like (laughs) classical rock or something like that something a little mellower okay so i want to you know i want to you've told us a lot about sort of how you got into the music scene in Detroit. So tell me, you know, what has happened to you since those days when you were playing? And because uh, your life has completely changed now. You're a father, a husband. Sure. You live in Colorado. You don't even live on the East Coast anymore. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, but music is still a big part of your life. And it's it's helped shape who you are and how you engage with your consciousness and the world. And, yeah, so I'm I'm just fascinated by your your story. Yeah, so you know it it, it changed at a certain point. I think um, I, I think after I left Detroit, uh, moved to Denver, I went to, ended up going to Naropa uh, to study creative writing, and at that point, I was much more interested in writing, and so music kind of more or less fell by the wayside. I was still, I guess, I had still equipment in Denver. Yeah, but then when we left, uh, so I met my wife in Denver, and uh, we decided to move to San Francisco, and um, I left, kind of left everything behind. I sold, like, half my records. I got rid of my turntables, you know, and from there, I was, like, much more interested in, like, focusing on trying to be a writer for a while, and um, I think I got pretty close at a certain point to becoming a professional writer, but, uh, you know, that's not a... Who are some of your inspirations? Uh, writers? Yeah. Um, Kurt Vonnegut. Mm. I love Kurt Vonnegut. Mm-hmm. He is so funny. I just love his sense of humor. Um, so I, I, I've always, he's probably one of my all time favorites. Um, uh, I wrote my thesis on, uh, Marguerite Dura. Uh, she has a book called the lover. Um, mm-hmm. and that book was really impactful for me, um, in terms of thinking about, um, memory and repetition and how those things work. Uh, there's a scene in that book that is replayed over and over and over again throughout the book. She keeps returning to this one scene mm-hmm. of, of this girl on a boat and each time she remembers different details about it which is more or less how your memory works right Mm -hmm. um but also i think i think it's uh, connected to the conversation we're having about music which is i think one of the knocks on techno or electronic music in general is oh it's so repetitive it's so repetitive Mm -hmm. but like i don't know artists use repetition all the time Mm -hmm. you know and especially in something like uh writing or poetry And, and this was the first time i had really seen it in a in a novel format and so that book was really impactful for me um, in terms of thinking about um, combining the poetic with uh, long-form writing, mm-hmm. um, thinking about ter- in terms of repetition and, and how you can use that, and, and then really getting engaged with how memory works and, and really trying to think about how memory works and how we remember things over yeah. time. I think um, some of my favorite writers, um, I'd probably say like at least four of my top five writers are from like the psychedelic genre mm-hmm. like people who um were active in the psychedelic world like um aldous huxley mm-hmm. i love um, aldous huxley yeah. yeah hunter thompson mm-hmm. he's my one of my yeah. all-time favorites with his uh his imagery that he can you know his, sure. his use of the language is so yeah. amazing <laughs> yeah. so people like that um you know really 
showed me that there's much more to writing than just, you know, telling a story, but, um, you know, you're giving people an experience by, uh, you know, sharing these, you know, these words, these letters on a piece of paper. For sure. Uh, so, you know, so music kind of dropped off for me for a really long time. Like I was still interested in music, still listened to music. I was listening to a lot of different types of music, like in San Francisco. And then we moved to Chicago after that and same, um, it wasn't until really recently that I got back into music, um, and it was because I started running. Mm. Um, it's the funny thing. So, uh, you know, I started running a couple of years ago, and I wanted to have music, uh, you know, something that was like, you know, uh, you know, bumpy that I could like, you know, jog along to. And um, I downloaded a couple of mixes, you know, then I was like, they were just okay. And I was like, well, I'm just going to make my own. Like I can do better than this. Right. Yeah, yeah totally. And so, you know, I, just, I, I got some equipment. I, I, I got a program. It's some software. It's called Ableton Live. And I, I got this software and uh, just started, you know, dumping tracks into it and then mixing them down uh, uh, more like post-production style, not like live mm-hmm. mixing, but putting them in and then arranging them so that they were a cohesive mix. So I would have something to go running uh, to. And then from there, um, we started getting more involved with the psychedelic community. And I guess I started realizing, oh, this might be like, a, there might be an outlet for me to to get back into music. And sure enough, there has been. I mean, it's been, you know, it's not like I'm playing out at clubs or anything, but it's been really fun just to sort of like the night we spent together, just to, mm-hmm. to have uh, a captive audience of, of friends to play music for is, is more than enough for me for where mm-hmm. I'm at in my life today. What about the transition from analog to digital where before, I mean, your wife was telling me about your record collection that you had before and yeah. how you, it was insane. It was and, outrageous. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know what that means. Like, can we, what, can you put so, a number on it? Well, for me personally, it was probably about 2000 records. Okay. Um, but there was a time where I lived in Denver where we had my records, my roommate who had a, probably another 2000 and then we were storing records from an old DJ friend of his, which was probably another 4,000 records. So, I mean, we had 8,000 8, records in the house. It was like a whole wall in the wow. house That's of incredible. just records, floor to ceiling. Yeah. One um, of my, one of my favorite musicians, Henry Rollins, uh, is huge on records. He's and, a pretty good writer too, by yeah, the way. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah. I have some of his books, but, um, I've seen pictures of inside of his house, uh, in, in, a, or I, th- I think it's an apartment, but he has like a whole wall mm-hmm. of, uh, it looks like a library, mm-hmm. but it's thin ass little records. Yep. And then he has like these speakers hooked up to a turntable and the speakers cost like 200 grand. Mm-hmm. Like they're insanely yeah. amazing. He yeah. just cranks those vinyls. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would, you know, at some point, and we're fine. I think we're finally settled enough where mm-hmm. I think I could start collecting Building vinyl again. Up. But it's weird because I've, you know, I've really moved away from this sort mm-hmm. of analog to to doing things more digitally. Um, there's just something about the technology that I think is is um, almost more fun. So you know, when you when you, when you're mixing analog, you know a lot of your attention and a lot of your energy is spent just trying to keep the beats matched, right? So you're fixing the, you're using the pitch control that's on the turntable to speed it up or slow it down. And then you're, you're physically manipulating the, either the, the platter or the, you know, the, the post that the, the record's on to speed it up or slow it down, but you got to stick with it through the whole mix. And so, um, I was never great at beat matching. I'm mm-hmm. probably maybe a little above average so I could do it. And if I was doing it out on a big system, I'm pretty good at it. Um, but you end up spending a lot of energy just keeping the beats matched and less time thinking about uh, the communication with the audience. Mm-hmm. And so this was when, when we got together, that was the first time I had um, used this digital setup uh, using Tractor where it syncs it for you. Mm. Um, and you get a lot of arguments from old school DJs sure. who say, ah, that's not, you know, that's not mixing. You're not, you know, you're not, but 
I found it really liberating to be able to think more about the communication with the people and less about the technical aspects of mixing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, for the audience, I was sharing a video, uh, with you beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys can go look this up on YouTube, just type in, um, DJ swamp. And I think it's his 2002, uh, techniques world championship set or something. So there's turntable world championships, which I didn't even know about mm-hmm. before I did a search. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing because, you know, he's trained his mind, to be able to uh, minimize the amount of energy he spends on uh, matching the beats. It's mm-hmm. like almost automatic so that he can spend uh, a great more deal energy connecting with the audience. Mm-hmm. You know, he was, he was throwing merch into the audience, throwing records. He was uh, rapping over his yeah. own mixes. He was lighting his hand on fire and, and spinning sure. the records that way. And all while keeping a beat and scratching on these analog yeah. systems, it's, um, it's it's a lot to manage all at once and i can imagine like with the technology the way it is like uh you can incorporate a lot more detail a lot more aspects if you can take some of the energy expenditure and give it to the the work of the machines yeah and it still feels almost the same you're just losing that one component i mean you still have to find two tracks that fit together Mm -hmm. technically where the where the beats fit and they match up and that the you know, they're, they're kind of talking to each other, like I was saying before. Um, and then you still have to, you know, find the ins and outs uh, of the track. So you still got to bring it in in the right place and bring it out in the right place because you don't want to have that jarring experience, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to have that. Or you're dancing that, um, and then all of a sudden it's like nails on a chalkboard. Yeah, exactly. And so you're trying to avoid that. So there's, there's still a lot of technicality to, to mixing digitally, I think, um, enough that it's still fun. <laughs> you have to have an ear for it too. Yeah, for sure. Like for me, like that's one skill that I wish I never have and why I wanted to have you on the show. Cause I'm very envious of musicians mm-hmm. and people who have the ability to manipulate sound in that way. Yeah. I tried to take piano at one point. I learned a few songs and it just wasn't for me, yeah. but I really wanted to get to like the keyboard and like synthesizing music and mm-hmm. things like that. And, just didn't stick with it long enough to be able to do that. So I poured all my attention and skill development into physical mm. tasks, right? Yeah. Like my, I've been a martial artist since I was four, mm-hmm. you know, one type or another. So it's all about like, we're on similar paths as far as like, we're both on paths of mastery mm-hmm. in these passions of ours, yeah. but totally different expressions. For sure. yeah. yeah. But also... I love to train jujitsu way more when I have music in the yeah, background. Yeah, I was going to say, there's got to be yeah. some overlap there yeah. for sure. And I, when I teach, uh, I teach jujitsu every Thursday, and um, so I get to be the DJ. I get to select the music. And I pay attention to how it affects the energy in the mm. room, how it affects um, the willpower that my students are able to draw from, yep. right? So uh, some days, you know, I'm feeling a little sore and, and the curriculum that I came up with for that day is going to be more like flow drills and movement and really feeling and stretching the body. So I'll put on like, um, some reggae or Mm -hmm. some, uh, red hot chili peppers or something, just get people like loosened up. But if I choose to do a day where we're doing like competition drills and I'm going to be pushing these people past like where they think their mind can Mm go. I'll put on something challenging on purpose, something outside their realm, an additional variable they have to deal with. So Mm -hmm. I'll put on sometimes some heavy metal so that they have, 
you know, all this sound and confusion up here and they have to deal with the threat, right? Yeah. So that when, when the tournament comes and they, you know, the crowd in the background sure. and everyone yelling is that heavy metal music, they're yeah. still able totally. and they've trained themselves to hone that focus to be able to perform a very technical movement um, amidst the chaos, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I did the same thing when I was making mixes for running. Right, I know it's going to be seventy-five minutes long. I do the you know the same. I do the, mm-hmm. it's almost a meditation. Uh, and so. you know when you're going to hit your runner's high too, so you exactly. put that song in. Exactly, that I know I'm going to need a little like boost yeah. uh, on lap four because I'm starting to like you know I'm starting to fade, and I know I'm going to need a little boost, so I'll put something that's going to really like get me hyped up uh, to get around that last lap. That's awesome, dude. I swear, and I want the listeners out there and you to. Pay attention to this, see if it happens to you. But, uh, you know, those predictive analogs uh, uh, or predictive um, uh, predictive things like in Google and Facebook that can predict what you buy and your mm-hmm. buying habits, uh, algorithms. Right. I think um, like Pandora and all these music um, companies that we listen to our music through, we stream it through. I think all these companies have similar algorithms or it seems like it anyway, so that like if I'm on a long run, like I have a playlist uh, and I put it on every time, but I put it on shuffle, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I sort of take the perspective that I'm running that like whatever comes up on my playlist is what's meant to happen and that's what feeling I'm supposed to feel and that I'm supposed to work through for the next five minutes of this music um, or it's going to facilitate me, right? So there'll be parts in my run where I'm really struggling and mm-hmm. I'll just say to myself in my head like, please give me this specific song next or, or, you know, I really need to hear this one. And then my, whatever I'm listening to, will play that next, that song next. Like it happens more times than yeah. I think would be coincidence. Right. Um, and it's a particular song called quantum flux by this mm-hmm. band called North lane. They're a heavy metal band from Europe, but they sing all about like um, quantum consciousness and, and being connected to the dream that's like right here in front of us all the time and yeah. uh, it just like you know boosts me in my run <laughs> yeah. and, but it's crazy like I, I think we have more of a connection to some of these softwares than we think we do <laughs> and you know maybe my brain waves and my prayers are somehow influencing the random music generator in my in my phone i think there were actually some experiments done with random number generators and really? people influencing the results through mental powers and so that might be what's going on with my music. Sounds, sounds like another study. Another experiment. <laughs> but, man, that's a, that's a lot of data. Yeah. So um, so you're getting back into music these days. I did see your record collection. Um, by the way, that, that room down there in your house is amazing. It's great. Huh? Yeah. So has your role for, for vinyl, has is it sort of switched to be like you put a vinyl on when you want to just kind of sit and relax versus? It's more like I can't find my vinyl digitally. It's like oh. so old, some of it, that it just doesn't exist. Some of it does, and I've been able to track it down, but uh, f- a good portion of the things I have on vinyl are not available digitally. So mm. that, if I want to listen to something like that, then I'll then I'll pull it out and put it on. And it's been fun to pull them out um, uh, uh, on New Year's. Um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Dustin, actually, he's been on your show, Dustin mm-hmm. Dippin. So, you know, he's, he brought his turntables back from Wisconsin, and he's storing them at my house. And so we were mixing records together, and I hadn't done that in a long time. And that was just pure fun. Um, you know, our mixes weren't great. Our music didn't fit together that great. But it was just, like, good fun to be mixing my records again. Mm-hmm. And so it's maybe more more nostalgia than anything. But um, I'll always hold on to them for that reason alone. It's, you know, some of those records just have 
instant memories for me. Uh, like we were talking before, how music and memories get connected so easily. But a lot of them is like that. And, you know, I'll always keep them. But some of them don't even play anymore because they're just so old and warped and scratched. Mm. And, you know. Then and they're just memorabilia. Yeah. Sentimental. Sure. You know? And um, I'm sure, I mean, you get to have the opportunity to teach your kids about this this thing that is I mean, really, kids would think about it as like ancient technology these days. Yeah, the records for sure. Um, uh, you know, and he's uh, my older boy, Milo. He's he's ten, and he's definitely more interested in uh, uh, using tractor and the digital part of it, and mm-hmm. that it's on a, mm-hmm. anything on a computer. You know, it doesn't even matter what it is. You put a computer screen in front of his face, and you know, he's like zoned in. So uh, he's messed around with tractor a little bit, and he seems uh, a little bit interested. So yeah. I definitely want to fuel that passion if if that comes up for him. Uh, we try to continue to just push them to wherever they're um, drawn to. And he seems somewhat drawn to music, although he doesn't like loud noises. So I don't know how that's going to work out so well for him. Mm. Yeah, my wife and I, we haven't had any kids yet, but, you know, we like to fantasize and think about what it's going to be like. And uh, I think we've only come up with like three uh, house rules, and that is, you have to get your blue belt in jiu-jitsu at least nice. before you can choose to quit. Um, uh, no country music whatsoever allowed in the house. And um, you have to learn a musical instrument of some kind. That is a surefire way to have them never do jiu-jitsu. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, like, you know, that's just how it goes. Yeah. Uh, you just have to wait and see what they're interested in and give them yeah. a little nudge towards it. Yeah, although... You know, the way that my master did, he, he's been doing jiu-jitsu over 50 years. He's from Brazil. He uh, has a large family, lots of kids, and he did that same thing. Like, mm-hmm. he required all them boys and girls to yeah. at least get their blue belt. Yeah. But they're a jiu-jitsu family. Like, right. he's world-renowned for it, you yeah. know. So, I don't know. Well, yeah, we're going to have fun navigating that. And you, I mean, that's something major that's changed for you, too, amidst your whole life is, you know, kids and and, uh, marriage and for sure moving and so i mean everybody that i talk to about those experiences says that it has just opened up their lives in so many ways that they never thought possible and i am yeah i envy that it's probably the most challenging thing as well i mean you're in a long-term relationship that alone is 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 challenging i think and then uh having children on top of that is is, adds a whole other layer of complexity and and that's also challenging but yeah it's also the most rewarding thing Mm-hmm. You know, having a having a sound marriage and, and having you know uh, a family has been uh, probably the best thing that I've done out of all of these things. You know, uh, music is a hobby. Um, you know that that's more real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess my like I really want a family. I guess my only remaining fears about it is is just thinking about like what am I going to have to give up of myself and maybe never do again. Uh, for the benefit of these kids. Well, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say never. Uh, yeah, true. Like, you definitely give up a bunch, especially in the early years. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess what we're finding out now is is you can uh, find these things again. So I'd been away from music for for years, and and it, a lot of it probably was around uh, the time we started having children, right? Because you just you know there's, you just have to focus on that, and so uh, it's been really gratifying uh at this point in my life to come back and, and realize oh i can i can get back into music and and still do these things and still have just as much fun as i always did uh playing music so mm-hmm. and do you get these these little beings to uh integrate into that experience yeah i think too? at some point for sure it's been that that's been definitely fun mm-hmm. to see him like you know nosing around the, the equipment and and wanting to learn more about it mm-hmm. and how many children do you have two and what are their ages again uh 10 and 7 yeah 
So you're, yeah, you're, so we're just getting to the other side now. Yeah, you're been fantastic. Working. All of a sudden, yeah. we have like a life again, and it's 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 really great. Yeah, good. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna be coming to you and talking to you more about awesome. your experience <laughs> about that. Um, in the last little bit that we have, um, I was hoping that um, you could, you know, reflect on your life, reflect on your experiences, your insights, um, your mistakes things like that and what you've learned from them. And if you could, and I know this is a really challenging question to ask, but if you could like uh, sum up in a life lesson for the audience, something, you know, something that you can bring to this mass puzzle of collective consciousness that we can all hopefully use or, or, you know, take to heart or consider for ourselves. What is something that you think you, would want to share with other people. I think to always just keep keep searching, just to keep mm-hmm. looking. I think, uh, I think even if you've found something, keep searching. Yeah, for sure, and to just keep experimenting. I guess that's what I see with uh, the group of people we we are with now is everybody's just so open minded and willing to explore and search and experiment and um, think about consciousness. And uh, I think that's been really eye opening for me to to sort of. I guess there was a point, you know, I, I had. Uh, worked with psychedelics, not worked with, uh, you know, just recreationally when I was younger. And and I guess I had always thought in the back of my mind, oh, yeah, I'll get back to that at some point, you know, after the kids are gone. I was thinking more like 60, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like that we would we would we would return to that idea like in, in our old age or something. But it's found me much earlier than that. And that's been sort of this uh, surprise. And so when things like come up like that and you have this opportunity to to explore, I think that's the biggest thing is to just just keep looking, just keep searching and exploring your own consciousness and, you know, um, you know, what, what else, what else do we have to do here? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, that's going to resonate with a lot of people. It certainly resonates with me. I think, um, you and I, and in particular, some of the people that we hang out with, we are, you know, we're not dipping our toe in the, in the water, you know, we're jumping in head first saying, you know, let's see how far we can push this thing and, and how much we can experience in this lifetime. And, how much happiness we can generate and how much healing we can, sure. we can help with. And, um, you know, it just feels like an over overall and overwhelming in a good way, like expansion. Sure. Like yeah. our, our, when we come together as a group, we expand out and, uh, you know, every day I, when I leave for work or school, my uh, wife says, heal the world, heal the world. <laughs> yeah. And that's what it feels yeah, like. And I think the biggest thing is is, is, is community for, for me. Yeah. Um, there's been these two times in my life that I've had uh, a community of, of people that I've wanted to be with and a community of people that was interested in exploring and searching and uh, experimenting. Um, and one was the early years of, of this Detroit techno scene mm-hmm. and, and most recently with this group of people that are interested in sort of um, exploring the boundaries of their own consciousness. And so having that community and creating a community, I think is probably um, the most important thing, at least it has been for me. Yeah. So keep searching. Create community. Yeah. Create community. There are people out there. I like the, I've heard the term finding the others. Mm-hmm. There are people out there just like you that are thinking the same things and asking themselves the same questions. It's a matter of, you know, for me anyway, putting myself out there and being a little bit vulnerable to broach the topic with people and see how they respond. But I've been, I've always been surprised with how many people out there uh, I can connect with on that level. And uh, when it happens, it feels like, where have you been all my life? Yeah. It's amazing. 
Well, thanks, Jason, for coming on the show. Thank you. It was really fun. Yeah, good. I hope to have uh, your wife on sometime. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe both you guys uh-huh. on it uh, as well. It'd, sure. be, it'd be fun to hear your guys' story of traveling and, awesome. and all that stuff. So um, to you listeners out there, keep growing, keep changing, keep uh, keep attuning to your higher self. And, um, yeah, enjoy yourself on this planet. Okay? we got a short amount of time. Let's uh, Let's spread the message. Man, that was a great show. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jason, so much for coming on. Um, it's always good to sit down and get to know people a little bit better. And, um, you know, I've only known Jason for, I don't know, less than six months probably, but uh, he's been one of the most mysterious people in my circles, but also one of the most fascinating um, when we do get to sit down and talk. Uh, and he's only been mysterious because we haven't had much opportunity to really sit down and get to know each other. So this was really a a special treat. And uh, thank you, Jason, for coming on. I hope you listeners got something out of that. I know I certainly did. Um, Just opening my perspective, my my mind, my eyes around music and what it can be used for, what potentials are there, and how cool is it that it's sort of like, you know, it's integrated completely with our species and other species as well create music just naturally it's amazing um so thanks jason for coming on the show if you listeners out there um please like and share the podcast donate to the podcast if you find it valuable go check out the youtube page that's mind ops m-i-n-d hyphen o-p-s and uh we'll catch you guys next time till then check out this arturo complex track and uh yeah keep on listening
Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen OPS.com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page.